This is the Illinois. This is my time. This is our time. Grab that bull by the horns and own it, man. Today's your day. Let's go to work. Welcome to the Illinois podcast. The Illinois. Cutting through the noise of Illinois politics. Here's your host, Patrick Fingston. Well, hey there. Good afternoon. Live from my basement. Welcome to our weekly live stream and podcast. I'm Patrick Fingston. I write theillinois.com. Coming up, we'll be joined by State Representative Jeff Kiker, a Republican from Sycamore, who's a Republican conference chair in the House GOP leadership uh, this new session. We'll discuss if there's any common ground we can find on gun violence, the new push to bring the graduated income tax before voters, and how the Republican Party can be relevant after they were wiped out in November. We'll also talk to John Seidel, the federal courts reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, on challenges to the new assault weapons ban, more on that in a moment, as well as court challenges to the cash bail portion of the uh, Safety Act and uh, the criminal case against former House Speaker Michael Madigan. First, though, the the assault weapons ban, which uh, is is continuing to to permeate the news in this state. Much of your your mainstream media is spending a lot of time on the gaggle of state lawsuits that that are being filed by uh, former attorney general candidate Tom DeVore, former gubernatorial candidate Darren Bailey and and members of that so-called Eastern Bloc in the Illinois House. There was a downstate judge in Effingham County that that put a temporary hold on on the the assault weapons ban, um, but but remember that it only applies to the uh, actual uh, the plaintiffs in that actual case. Uh, so it doesn't apply to you or me or your local gun shop. And and people smarter than me tell me the either the state appellate court or or the Supreme Court uh, are going to uh, boot that suit for lack of standing. The real question here on on the constitutionality of this law is going to be settled in federal court. Two new suits were filed yesterday, uh, in addition to the. Uh, one filed last week by the State Rifle Association. So that's a total of three. These new ones from the NRA uh, and a group sm- of smaller kind of gun rights groups, uh, including the the group Gun Save Life, which uh, you may recognize from the uh, Burma Shave style signs they have up along interstates uh, all around downstate. Uh, their, their argument is essentially what you would expect. It's that the Assault weapons ban is uh, unconstitutional via the Second Amendment. Uh, here's here's what we had this uh, we had this uh, segment in the subscriber newsletter this morning. Uh, the way that they they put the argument in the newsletter in their suit today uh, that was filed yesterday. Contrary to the ignorant statements of those uninformed and or headline-seeking politicians who are opposed to civilian firearm ownership, the AR-15 and similar semi-automatic firearms are not weapons of war. The AR-15 is not used in war. No military has adopted it, opting instead for its automatic or burst-fire-capable counterparts like the M16 or M14. 
The same can be said for many semi-automatic rifles that are commonly owned by Americans today. Essentially, the argument that they're making is that the the court in this this latest uh, this this latest big case called Bruin B R U E N, if you want to Google it, uh, is is that the the court is saying that any traditional uh, gun uh, you know any traditional gun policy any any standard gun maybe not some like fifty caliber over your shoulder bazooka sort of thing but like a anything that's that's standard in the gun closets or or cases and or cabinets around the state uh, is essentially off limits uh, from from this sort of of legislation the the question is what is that definition and i don't know that the supreme court's really weighed in on that at this point and and i'm sure they will that's 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 the whole point of this is this this isn't going to be settled by a federal judge in benton this is going to probably find its way to the supreme court and you know it's it's I, I, and I wrote this in the newsletter the other day. It's it's disappointing that both sides are just talking past each other in in this situation. In this instance, uh, the left wants to indict every gun owner in the state as a a war criminal, essentially, and and every seemingly pro gun person in the state wants to you know shout don't you know, don't take my guns, you know, pry them out of my cold, dead hands, and you can't limit them from anybody. Well, in the end, the left should be talking about how to penalize those who are actually committing gun crimes, and the right should be penalizing those talking about how to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And nobody's having that conversation on any sort of serious level at this point. And nobody's going to benefit from that. And then we're just going to continue to have people who are yelling at each other. And, and it's never going to make anything better. And, and that's, that's frustrating. That's disappointing. So we'll, we'll see how these, these things shake out. Uh, Obviously it's not going to happen overnight, but uh, there are now three federal lawsuits filed in the Southern district of Illinois so uh, that's that's where the the real uh, the real discussion is going to begin, and uh, and I would advise you to pay attention to the federal court cases and and less about the uh, the the state court cases that are finding their way uh, up and down uh, the the media these days because of uh, some some politicians who like to find some microphones to be joined now by state representative jeff kiker a republican from sycamore up in the dekalb neck of the woods uh representative kiker a member of republican leadership as the new uh general assembly kicks off uh representative let's let's jump let's dive right into issues sure uh because i, I think guns are the the topic on everybody's mind right now with the assault weapon ban that was passed in the uh the the hours remaining in the general assembly then signed by the governor and is already in court uh and will surely find its way um you know before the u.s supreme court by the time this thing is all said and done i I know you were a no vote what how do you respond to the folks like like bob morgan who i think is a really good guy with with good intentions how do you respond to them when they say we have to 
ban guns like this. So one of my biggest frustrations, Patrick, and I've seen this in so many different facets that we've tried to pass in the state of Illinois since I've been in the General Assembly is we're always playing to the lowest common denominator. We're always codifying law to to get that one off situation taken care of. And, And yes, we have tragedies across this country, but what I consistently see is that the solutions are are not well thought out. They are inhibiting the the use. The, the Second Amendment is a very, very plain spoken amendment. It's very clear on what it can do. I'm not a lawyer. I recognize that this decision out of New York, that the Supreme Court rendered last year will will modify things and, and what they can do. But at the heart of it, the the dialogue and debate about what to do is is two sides that are speaking past each other, because we certainly see my friends and neighbors who are law abiding gun owners. They have their concealed carry permit. They have their FOID card. They are going out there. They're hunting. They're target shooting. My granddad was uh, a sharpshooter. We went out and shot trap and he had a backyard target up at his home and um, I have an undying respect for for the the use of a firearm, the safe control of a firearm, and and also to a certain extent the enjoyment of, of shooting a firearm. It's it's certainly something that, for many generations, is is core not only to identity but but to their rights that have been codified in the in the Constitution. And and when we see, I think there was a report over the last couple of weeks, we see in in Cook County specifically, I think there was 20,000 guns, give or take, that were in the hands of of those that that shouldn't be. We see at the same time a hobbling of law enforcement to actually enforce not only the laws that are on the books, but getting firearms out of the hands of criminals and and the mentally ill. And, And that just hasn't been done yet. So now we're taking with this this scatter approach and we're attempting to solve this grand problem by putting a Band-Aid on an issue that we haven't even stopped the bleeding on yet. And and that needs to start at those core issues of going after the criminals who are holding them, going after the mentally ill, and hopefully for my Democratic peers, putting law enforcement back on the pedestal that they deserve to be on because for far too long recently, we have not only put law enforcement at a disadvantage, but we have also societally forced them to be lesser than a proactive force that they have been in the past. And and they are fearful that they're gonna be held to some higher standard that this governor will come up with at the last minute um, and that the societal pressures out there will create for them. So so we need to do better of, of speaking together instead of past each other. And we need to do better at identifying the issues that will actually help resolve the problem. And, and I go back to not impacting law-abiding gun owners and going after the criminals and the mentally ill to help make our areas, especially Cook County, a more habitable place when it comes to firearms and firearm safety. I, I appreciate that you use the, the, the line about talking past each other since uh, that's exactly how I wrote it in the newsletter yesterday. Uh, but but I, I think we also need to, you know, whether wh- whether you're, you know, on on the left and you know i've said this the left needs to recognize that not all gun owners are bad but but it also seems the right is unwilling to have any sort of conversation about the fact that these these mass shootings are happening you know people are dying uh you know kids like this this little punk in island park who who 
got an AR-15 when he shouldn't have, essentially. Right. Um, and again, that, goes to had rules been enforced and held to a higher standard, we would have potentially not had the issue to the extent that we did. But but what what can the right get behind in terms of keeping guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them? Because I think I think I think we can everybody can agree that not everybody should have a gun. So how do we keep those away from from the bad people or the threats? So I, I appreciate the question, but there there's a corollary to that that needs to go hand in hand, right? You're asking what can the right get behind, and there are always going to be those on, on the very far right who are uh, absolutely adherents to the pure language of the Second Amendment. Just like on the left, you're going well, to have these. Well, to be to be are, fair, I'm not going to ask you what Democrats should do because you know, you're not a Democrat. <laughs> but on the far left, we also have that anything short of absolute banning of anything is is not going to be satisfactory. So they they are talking past each other. The vast majority of gun owners are responsible gun owners, and so the the infringement upon their right to be in that space. I think it starts with criminality and, and we are now making criminals by this new law that has passed, but I mean criminality and committing crimes. We go back that 20,000 folks, that's low hanging fruit. If we looked at taking 20,000 firearms off the streets of Chicago and Cook County by those that shouldn't have them, Patrick, how much less shooting would we have? And I think it also, it also points out and highlights the misappropriation of this solving a Highland Park issue when we have South and West Side Chicagoans who have faced this danger for generations and still haven't seen the response despite many advocated solutions. And so we need to see that buy-in and let's try something with what's currently there, I think, before we move that measure forward. Because otherwise it's just not fair. We're just, we're just giving lip service to it. And if we're going to infringe upon a constitutional right, we have to start with those that who arguably constitutionally shouldn't have it. And that's the criminals. That's the folks that are maybe don't have the capacity to appreciate it and mentally ill. We need to start there. And, and we go back to the tragedy at my alma mater at Northern Illinois University and nothing that we have addressed or passed except addressing mental illness would have resolved that situation prior to tragedy. So we need to look at that and consistently it comes back to that. And yet my Democrat peers are so dismissive that we need to address those issues. And they continue, uh, I'll go down a whole rabbit hole on that, but I'll, I'll pause there, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I appreciate that because I, I mean, I think, I think it's obvious that, you know, it is a left and right issue here that, that the left seems to think all in general, the left is, is in a position where it looks like they think all gun owners are bad, right. uh, which, which I think, Anyone in whether you're center left, center right, whatever, can agree that's not true. Uh, but but it but it also I've heard from far too many conservatives or pro gun people who want zero restrictions on on guns in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And to me, at least as a, a guy on the center right, I look at that and just say that that doesn't make sense because there are people who were at a Fourth of July parade or at a school or at a nightclub or at a, what was it? A lunar eclipse thing in California this week that, yeah. I mean, these are people living their lives. So I, I, I don't know that there's compromise, but boy, shouldn't there be? So let's go back to, to the premise that, that you shared and that is talking past each other. Right. So 
it is not a one size fits all solution. I've had folks that are that are gun owners uh, that that they'll tell you, yeah, you know what, little Jimmy over there, he he should not be handling that. He does not have the capacity. And in my neck of the woods, in rural, more rural Illinois, we we definitely see where that you're you're taking care of that, and and you're making sure that at a neighborly level, uh, things are sought after, and and that's that's almost a common sense thing out here. But in my more suburban areas, I have folks coming up to me saying two different narratives. They're they're suggesting that, you know, on the one hand, I don't see a need to have a, a an AR styled automatic gun, but I don't mind that somebody else does if they're out target shooting or having fun with it or enjoying it recreationally. I don't want to take that away from them. And then I also have other folks that are coming up to me and they say, well, you know, I've been a Republican all my life, but I really think we need to do something. And the problem is, Patrick, is that something like this, something that is so core to our society, there is no single solution that needs to be implemented because every single person along the spectrum is going to have a different feeling about what that what that ultimate solution needs to be. So why not start with the low hanging fruit, recognize some successes and move from there, because then the dialogue can gravitate. What we've seen is we've seen an imposition. Right. And anytime you're forcing somebody to go along with something that at their core, they don't understand why we're doing this. And at their core, they don't recognize that this is a problem needing solved, which is largely rural Illinois, west of the Collard counties and, and south of where we're at. You're forcing a third of the state of Illinois to not only react, but react aggressively because they aren't solving the problem in Cook County in Chicago with the illegal gun ownership that's starting there. So let's not start by making more criminals through this act. Let's start by enforcing and taking away from criminals. Let's put resources behind law enforcement. Let's make sure that our ground level law enforcement has the tactical and safe manner to do that. And I know that my peers on the left are gonna first say, so you're gonna vote for the budget. And I tell you what, there are many things in that budget I would vote for. There are many things in that budget I wouldn't vote for. As soon as you put them all together, that creates a very iffy scenario. So if we start breaking down the budget by these line items that are specifically solving certain problems, you betcha we'll have Republicans on there, we'll have Democrats on there because we are solving that unique issue. We aren't taking the baggage that traditionally, you know, Madigan's practice has been, let's throw it all in one bucket and pass it together so that we can get you on the good stuff and the bad stuff. We need to solve this problem. We need to be serious about it. We need to remove the gamesmanship that up to this point in time, all I've seen is that's the left that's played. We had a we had a story in the newsletter uh, for subscribers this morning uh, with Representative uh, or Senator Rob Martwick. Um, he's he's going to move toward uh, bringing back the question of a graduated income tax. Yeah, um, which which you know his 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 assessment is that the way that we're moving now with the numbers he's getting from Cogva shows a two hundred and fifty billion dollar discrepancy between you know, where spending today would go and where revenue would go by the time we get there. Um, obviously, voters rejected this in 2020. Uh, where where are you? How would you? Uh, obviously, I, I, I think it's safe to say you're opposed to the idea, but 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 very safe. What, what, <laughs> what's your reaction to the thought of bringing bringing the idea back up? So, so let's break this down a little bit. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see my comments on the floor the other night as we were passing a supplemental appropriations bill, specifically actually to the violence interruption grants. And I read uh, in front of former uh, leader Harris before he left, I read through, I think it was two and a half pages 
of granted organizations that were going to do this. And I asked Representative Harris, interrupt me when I get to an organization that does work in a Republican district. And I wasn't able to be interrupted because that hasn't happened. So what does that reflect? We go back a couple of years and we look at the significant capital funds, and this came up as a debate in the elections. We look at the significant capital funds that the Democrats have expended, and we look at the $2 billion in capital funds that went for pet projects in existing or newly drawn under the map Democratic districts, and we continue to see a government that panders to their way of thinking. We need to stop that. We need to stop. We need to have a governor who is about representing all of Illinois instead of the two-thirds that put him in office. 58%, I think, was the margin, right? But for us in the House, we have 40 to their 78 we represent a third of the people of the state of Illinois. And for the governor to continue to cut out a third of the people of the state of Illinois, how dare you ask for additional dollars? You aren't even serving everybody in this state right now. And so we look not only at that, that's just a, that's just a surface issue. But when we look at the expansive approach that he has taken to the spending protocol, at the same time during the first year after it didn't pass, the state of Illinois took in the added revenues that his prior tax plan would have brought in, and we continued to spend. This current year was an additional, I believe, hold me on the numbers if I'm inaccurate here, but it was an additional $2 billion, and now we're an additional 3 or $4 billion behind, uh, in front of what our budget number was at the close of the, of the budget planning that we did last spring. We continue to have growth in our dollars, and we continue to spend it. We haven't acted like adults. We haven't acted like fiduciaries in the eye of the Illinois taxpayer. So how dare we ask for more of that? We need to make sure that we hold the line until there is accountability. We cannot ask for more money than we already take. And that's my line. It is about ethics. It is about good governance. It is about holding accountable the actions that we're asking our government to do and not pandering and handing out thousands and millions of dollars to different groups that in the past have supported the governor and his side of the aisle. To be fair, I don't think the governor, I, I think the governor said it's not something he's interested in when he was asked about it last week, but uh, we'll see not how that goes. In not, uh, not interested in moving forward on a graduated income tax question. Yeah, this okay. Was, okay. But again, it's January 25th. So we'll see what happens between now and the middle or end of May. Uh, along those lines though, in the governor's inaugural uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it feels like this is kind of getting under uh, undercovered uh, or underreported. It was was kind of what the governor laid out as his priorities in terms of uh, you know free college, free preschool, free childcare. Uh, you, you heard uh, we had Comptroller Mendoza on last mm -hmm. last week who said that the devils are in the devil is in the details. You know, and like if the free college follows along. MAP grants, it's probably not that expensive, but if you open it up to like everybody who gets EITC, you're probably opening that up gigantically. Governor isn't saying how to pay for it or how much it's gonna cost, but uh, how, do, how do Republicans look at the, the idea of trying to give kids good starts, whether it's, whether it's through preschool, whether it's, you know, working class families who need help with childcare and is a, father of a 14 month old it it ain't cheap uh you know it's yeah. or, or or obviously you know trying to give kids a college education to keep them in illinois there there are obviously good intentions here but but there's the question of how to pay for it 
So let me let me break that down a couple of ways. I don't know if you know much about my background. I was raised by a, a single mom uh, who waited tables, colonial restaurants, keep a keep a roof over our head. And there were there were times that I can remember as a kid, literally taking coins to put gas in the vehicle for her. We're pumping it to get exactly at two dollars to go in the tank, uh, opening the cabinet doors and only seeing a you know a jar of of uh, canned vegetables sitting on the counter. So. Um, my background and my experience has definitely been uh, one of growth through adversity. And, and so that breaks down twofold. I think the state needs to do a much better job of taking care of our most vulnerable, and that is direct to the most vulnerable. It is not creating additional programs. It's not giving out additional dollars just because. It is taking care of those in need. I was very disappointed in the supplemental appropriation that we didn't look after our, our adult disabled population to the extent that they were asking, um, because that's that's gonna mean things in our communities and that's gonna take resources uh, that Illinois currently has because we're flush with capital and it's denying our most vulnerable the opportunity to succeed in life by sending it and pandering it to different organizations. There were multiple chambers of commerce, not that they don't do good work, but I think if I was weighing whether to give money to a chamber of commerce or the disabled community, I would personally choose disabled community all day long. And so we look at the expansion of these programs and, and of course everybody, everybody wants what's free, right? Hey, we get it. We wanna pay as little as possible. We are a sale culture. But I was, I'm coming off of being the ranking Republican on higher education appropriations. And, and again, we look at my alma mater, Northern Illinois University, if, if you are a, a good grade student and you come from a household that makes under $75,000 a year, average household in the state of Illinois earns about $62,000 a year, so it's more than half of the households in Illinois, you won't pay a dime towards your tuition at Northern Illinois University. Through the granting process, through the Husky Promise is what they call it, and through getting the different aid packages assembled together, they have found a way through the Husky Pledge to make sure that those making under 75,000 get that free college as long as you maintain the grades. So I go back to qualifying and I go to means testing. Uh, Sue Shear had a bill uh, spring before last that would have uh, given free college to everyone that was pursuing a teaching certificate. And, and when asked whether this would apply to the daughter of the multimillionaire going to ISU, who daddy still had millions of dollars in the bank, would it apply to her? The answer was yes. It was over a billion dollar program. There's no means testing to that. That person doesn't need the hand up to the extent that someone does whose mom is maybe making $30,000 a year working in a restaurant, waiting tables 20, 25 hours a week to try to make sure her kids can get somewhere. So means test is part of what it is. Free college is a great narrative, but it just doesn't hold water. What if, what if you get all Ds? Are you still getting free college? What if your dad's a multimillionaire? Are you still getting free college? And I think that goes to daycare and preschool as well. In my community, like many others, there are not only the homeschooled population, but there are parents who intentionally make a decision that one of them will stay at home and care for their kids so that they can give their children a best opportunity by being there for them on a regular basis. And I think that this idea of free daycare and free preschool, again, it needs to be an opportunity for those that can't otherwise provide for it, but it also needs to be a means tested opportunity that is optional. We should not be mandating people how they do it, uh, 
how, how they work with their kids because then we're just we're indoctrinating them and that's that's not right that's that's also a step too far representative you mentioned um the 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 number of republicans in the house in this new general assembly is smaller than it's been you know since the cutback amendment which was essentially when i was born uh it's it's i have to imagine and and i say this as a guy who worked on senate staff when republicans had 18 or 19 members that it has to be really difficult to one get anything done but two stay relevant at all so so how do you say to your constituents we can still get things done in springfield other than just going down there and voting no on everything yeah well i think first and foremost to to your last comment there my constituents did not send me down there to to say no you know when when i look back the scariest vote that I took, Patrick, was on the 2019 Republican compromise to the to the budget that year that included the data data center incentive, the franchise tax repeal, manufacturer's purchase credit, blue collar jobs act and a whole host of other re, uh, Republican ideas uh, that we were able to get passed in a very unique set of circumstances. And in my own district, that has led to the location of a Facebook data center. Ferrara Candy has built two facilities here. Amazon has built We've got a couple other folks that are sniffing around and what we need to do, we need to encourage that continued opportunity for job creators specifically who will come to Illinois and allow us the opportunity to give a good working career to those that come after us. And that's in the trade labors, that's in the the, the factories that, that are turning out amazing things in this new economy. So we need to present those opportunities and we need to be available to them like we were in 2019 because nobody thought we could do it in 2019 either. So we need to look at where those opportunities lie. But along with that- But, our... but do you, sorry, do you feel like you can trust the governor? I mean, after he, he went right back in and, and repealed the franchise tax? You know, I don't think that the governor has earned the right to be trusted without verification, like like Reagan had suggested. Um, but you need to start at a place. You can't just you can't just not govern, right? So, um, and I don't think he's done. When we look at DCFS, we look at DCO, we look at IDES, we look at some of the institutions that are administrative in nature in this state that have been unresponsive to our tax base, to our pol- to our our uh, our constituents we need to hold a greater accountability and that's the other piece i think we need to work on fiscal discipline and fiscal responsibility and pointing out where this spending plan has been mismatched and and overdone where we can do better at stopping the expansive state growth that we've seen over the last four years but also on the ethics front we need to be very very diligent on making sure that we still continue to work towards closing these ethical loopholes as someone who sits on the legislative ethics committee I have seen firsthand where, you know, we're suggesting that there's an expansion in ethics while at the same time, we're tying the hands of the organization that is charged with keeping keeping legislators, my peers and I, uh, accountable to that. And, and that's just, it, it's not doing the good governance work that we should be doing because once we do that good governance work, we restore the faith of the people of Illinois into what we do. And right now that is such a low level that, we need to do everything we can to be good actors in good faith. And I would demand that not only of the governor, but also my peers on my side of the aisle and the other side. So our relevancy comes in creating the ideas. And I was most flattered last year to that point almost 
uh, to have Senator Morrison steal my idea on the decennial uh, review of taxing bodies. She swiped the language, re-put it in hers and sent it over, passed unanimously three times, so I guess that's a good thing, but um, flattered by the opportunity to present good bills and good ideas, no matter who gets credit for them, is, is needing to be where we can win. Representative uh, Jeff Kiker, appreciate the time, appreciate the conversation, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, see you around uh, Springfield here over the next couple of months. Thanks for what you do. It's Representative Jeff Kiker joining us. Uh, appreciate his time uh, as he and I uh, sat down to uh, talk through a lot of issues. A few comments that uh, came in uh, as we were uh, having that conversation. Let me pull this up. Uh, this would be from uh, Todd Vanderbide, who uh, uh, is one of the uh, pro-gun uh, advocates in the state. Uh, over time, we've tried to work to keep guns out of the hands of bad guys. It uh, gets turned around on us. And uh, another uh, responding to some of uh, Representative Geiker's statistics, which I haven't taken the time to verify. So, uh, you know, here's here's this perspective. I uh, so off talk, taking 20,000 weapons out of crimes hand, criminals hands would stop killing is just bull with so many guns within the nation. It won't uh, won't take long for those 20,000 guns to be easily replaced in the criminals hands. So uh, a couple of uh, perspectives there. Uh, uh, on some things that uh, Representative Kiker had to say, let's uh, let's turn our attention to to the courts now to federal courts, which seem to be tied inexplicably to Illinois politics these days, and and maybe for a few more days than we would have liked. But between lawsuits and criminal cases, uh, John Seidel from the Chicago Sun Times, their great federal courts reporter, joins us. Uh, he is uh, an expert on all these these things that, that are uh, that are in the news right now. And uh, uh, John, I, I really appreciate the time. Let's let's start with uh, the the gun ban and how this is going to wind up in court. Sure. Essentially, what I'm telling people is don't pay attention to the the divorce downstate state suits and pay attention to the the federal suits because this, to me at least. Seems like it's going to be a, a, a federal constitutional question more than anything a state court can handle, right? Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, you know, I mean, look, the, the divorce suits are already having some effect. There was a temporary restraining order issued again for several people uh, late last week, and now he has a new uh, lawsuit involving uh, many more people. But you're right. I think long term, um, the ball game is really going to be in federal court. And whether or not um, the the Illinois law comports with um, the Constitution, and uh, as others have reported, including my colleagues, um, I, I think there's some serious question about whether or not this will stand up to scrutiny uh, if it gets up to the Supreme Court. You know, whether it's the Illinois law or some other state's law, um, I, I think it's going to come down to interpretation by the Supreme Court. How does the the Bruin case, which is you know what the the gun rights supporters are uh, are focused on, how does the Bruin case uh, impact uh, this law or or really even in general uh, potential gun legislation throughout the country? Sure. So last year the um, the Bruin decision uh, came down, and what it did was there used to be a two part test that appellate courts would use. Uh, to, well, I guess any courts, federal courts would use to uh, analyze uh, gun laws. 
um, it did away with the second part of the test. And, and really the, the, the guidance seems to be to look to the history and tradition of gun laws in the United States. And in fact, um, one part of that decision stood out to me um, dealing, there was, a, there was a comment along the lines of if there's a societal issue that has continued to exist over this, going back to the, to the 17th, I'm sorry, to the 18th century in some form, you know, uh, you know if there was no gun regulation uh, in place to deal with it, it's a pretty good indicator that any such law would be unconstitutional now. Uh, and one reason that stuck out to me is when I looked at the lawsuits filed by the Illinois State Rifle Association uh, last week, man, that, that that lawsuit seemed to be written directly um, to the Bruin decision and uh, even talked about some, some of the more powerful weapons that were available in the 1700s. Again, seemed to be playing into this idea that we had powerful weapons back then. There weren't, they weren't being regulated by these laws that we're seeing now. And if you, you follow that guidance from the decision, that would suggest that um, such a law is unconstitutional. Now, I, I think part of it may come down to um, whether these weapons are, are common and unusual or, or dangerous. Uh, I think there's probably an argument to be made that they are common. In fact, that's the argument that they're making in the lawsuit. Um, it, it may come down to the dangerousness of these weapons, but but it, it's an open question, and that's I think where we're going to have the litigation. You know, and you hear a lot about this weapons of war argument that that uh, gun control supporters are talking about, but I, I don't necessarily know that 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 argument makes sense because you've got, you know, obviously you know flintlock rifles were a weapon of war a hundred years ago, but you still have bolt action rifles in the military today. The the standard issue army handgun these days is a six hour M17, which you can go purchase at the gun store today. Uh, uh, and I wrote a piece in the newsletter yesterday about this, that that the it seems that these two sides are just talking past each other, you know, that it's, it's either, you know, all guns are bad or, you know, all guns have to be preserved. Are, how are, that, that leads me back to this. How do we take these two sides that are so far apart and apply their positions to a question that was written in the 1780s, right after we had deposed a, you know, a, a tyrannical king? I mean, how, how, how do you, as a, you know, how does a court balance those two issues? Well, um, you know, I think that I think it's a fantastic question, and I think what I, you know, what I've been See, I, don't, with, I don't know, and that's why yeah. I'm asking because I, 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 I don't get, I don't, I mean, I just, I don't see how, you know, obviously it's a different era, but there's always a threat, uh, you know, from from the perspective there is that you always have a threat of a tyrannical government, right? So I just, I don't necessarily understand the how you apply that to 2023 and beyond. Yeah, and I'm thinking about uh, how to answer that. You know, I mean, the the just a, a few random thoughts, and I don't know if this answers the the question. But you know, um, one thing that I've been thinking about as I've heard people on either side of this argument discuss this is, um, you know, as as a court guy, I just think about the legal issues, right? I, you know, I mean, yes, you can argue that guns are bad. I, the Second Amendment exists, and and you know, I, I don't think it's going anywhere in our lifetimes, and so, you know, we're 
if you want to put a, a law like this in place, you've got to acknowledge the legal framework that's out there. And the the authors of this law have said that that's what they've done. I'm interested. I I I, I haven't heard more detail about exactly how they tried to address it, um, but I want to see how it holds up to this scrutiny. But no, you're right. I, I agree that I think people are talking past each other. I think on the one hand, you hear all guns are bad, um, it, you know, and, you know, and there's been, you know, I mean, Highland Park, there's been terrible examples of, of gun violence. But we do have the Second Amendment in this country. It's there. It has to be acknowledged. It's there for a reason. And um, the judges, you know, are, are not going to ignore that. If you're going to pass a gun ban, um, you have to acknowledge that the Second Amendment is, exists and it's there and it's going to be protected. So um, how that's analyzed through all that, I mean, this, this is exactly why we're going to have litigation probably over the next few years. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to have to hear from the Supreme Court about how they think to answer that question. I, I wanted to touch on a couple of other issues with you, John, if you don't mind. The, the Safety Act, you and I were both in uh, Kankakee in, in December when uh, the, the attorney general and some state's attorneys argued uh, over the constitutionality of that state law, uh, specifically the cash bail part of it. Um, the question it seems like the, the state Supreme Court is going to have to issue to, to work on, because this is, of course, going to wind up with the state Supreme Court, is is over the idea of whether cash bail is specifically defined in the Constitution, because it's in the state Constitution, it talks about surety which, you know, sounds like cash for anybody who's a dope like me, but does, does that, what's, and I know you've written about this. So where, where does this argument boil down to? Well, it does boil down, I think in part to, to that. And so uh, you're right back last fall, I, I spoke to um, some experts about that line in the Illinois state constitution, including a, a state constitutional scholar uh, who said that sureties do not have to be uh, cash. It doesn't have to be money. They, um, some people pointed to electronic monitoring. Um, some people uh, pointed to um, monitoring by core personnel. So you don't have a, a you know, a bracelet on or an anklet on, but uh, you have somebody that you have to check in with. Um, you know, it, it just depends on which end of the spectrum that you're on. Uh, but that line, it, it just says sureties. Um, now, uh, there's also another part of the Constitution, though, I believe it's the crime victims rights portion that uh, refers, I believe, to the amount of bail. I might have the wording uh, there wrong, but there is some other language within the Constitution that I think refers to the amount. And so the argument is that, that no, if you look at the, the combined language of the state Constitution, it does refer to, to money. It, it does assume that money is going to be used as a surety. So, yeah, that is going to be part of what we have to sort out. Uh, I do think that the Illinois Supreme Court has issued, issued guidance in the past about sureties. Um, and, of course, the, um, the, the ruling out of Kankakee also dealt with the separation of powers. And, uh, you know, the Judge Cunnington, uh, I believe, uh, found that this was an undue infringement on, on a judge's right to, to be able to set bond. Um, so I wonder how that's, that separation of powers argument is going to come into play there as well. Uh, real quick, I wanted to talk about uh, the criminal case against former Speaker Madigan as it continues. Uh, it it just seems like the evidence continues to pile up as you see all these 
you know, the, the proffers come out in the, in the ComEd situation. It, 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 again, from a, an outside perspective, this doesn't look good. And the, in the, the feds usually don't take a case this high profile, uh, don't make the charges unless they feel like they've got it. Mm -hmm. uh, from, from your perspective, what are you hearing? What are you, what are you seeing in, in terms of where the former speaker stands? Well, as far as where he stands, he's under indictment and um, some people close to him, including his closest confidant, are about to go on trial. You know, so so Michael McLean uh, and Pramajor, the, the former CEO of ComEd, uh, a, a former lobbyist, John Hooker, and then Jay Doherty from the City Club, they're about to go on trial in March. And it, it really will be a preview of the Madigan trial because the, the, the McLean et al. trial, if you will, it is basically count two, I, I believe, of the Madigan indictment. So we're going to see a lot of evidence that could come out in the Madigan trial. The other thing that could be interesting is, is whether or not these defendants will reconsider their position once they're on the other side of this. And, and I don't want to assume anything here. They're all, they've all pleaded not guilty. Um, they remain not guilty, uh, uh, you know, unless a jury comes back and, and, and finds them guilty. But as you said, the, the federal prosecutors have a very good track record in this town. If they come out on the other side of this and, and some of these individuals are, are guilty, um, I'm not saying they're, they're going to decide to cooperate, but, but it kind of changes the calculus a little bit. So there, there could be a squeeze there. So I think that's part of what's at stake. What's the Madigan team saying, whether it's, you know, obviously publicly they're saying we're innocent and, and et cetera, et cetera. But, Behind the scenes, how concerned are they? Uh, well, behind the scenes, I mean, first of all, I think they know about the, the track record in the federal prosecutor's office. <laughs> I mean, that's no secret. They know what it means when, you know, everything that you just said, that the U.S. Attorney's Office isn't going to bring a case unless they believe that they can prove it. But, you know, that, that said, I think there is, um, from the beginning of this, there are questions about the line between um, politics in general and when it crosses the line uh, into criminal activity. And, and I think that's going to be the theme through a lot of this and whether or not trying to do things to curry favor with a powerful politician, um, it, whether or not that's illegal, because, you know, let's face it, that kind of thing is done all over the country every day. People try to please powerful politicians. And that's part of what was going on here. But there are examples that prosecutors will point to of how it turned into to fraudulent activity, violated comments, um, you know, standards, the, the rules, the way they were supposed to conduct themselves, and, and it just turned into all an out bribery. And John, before we let you go, uh, and do appreciate the time, I think it all ties in uh, to uh, the case against Madigan. Uh, the the U.S. Attorney John Lausch is is leaving. Uh, he's you know obviously in the middle of this case, so. Uh, we don't know who's going to come in. Obviously, it's a Democratic administration. So, and you've got two Democratic U.S. senators. So that's, you know, that's the, the direction it'll be going. What does Lausch's departure mean? I think one in terms of the Madigan case, and two in terms of uh, the crimes that are being uh, prosecuted uh, on a, 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 a wider level in the Northern District. Well, first of all, for the Madigan case, I, I, I really have no reason to think it, it's going to mean much. Um, 
first of all, anybody who watches these things know that, you know, that's it's the U.S. attorney who's who's there at the press conference. That's the face the public sees. A lot of this work is is done by the, the line prosecutors, the people who are actually at the table in the courtroom, as well as the FBI and IRS investigators, the, the, those those people whose names and faces you don't see. They're the ones who are doing this work. Um, you know, it remains to be seen who the next U.S. attorney is. But don't forget that Tammy Duckworth and uh, Dick Durbin went to bat to keep Lausch in his office. Um, they said to conclude sensitive investigations. Everybody took that as a reference to the Madigan investigation. They wanted this seen through. And they're the same senators who are going to be involved in choosing the next U.S. attorney. So I don't see any indication that this is going to somehow throw the Madigan case off track. What does it mean for, for uh, you know, the, the wider spectrum of cases? I mean, the new U.S. attorney could come in with, with new priorities, but I think the priority here, again, Dick Durbin and, and Tammy Duckworth, the senators, are going to choose someone. You know, priorities in Chicago have always been public corruption. Street violence is another one. Those were priorities of John Lausch. Those were priorities of Zach Farden. And, you know, one more thing I'd point out that I've seen now that I've been on this beat for about eight years is, is there really... Unless something drastic happens, I, I, I've, there's been real continuity over the years. Um, as much as Lausch uh, gets credit and should get the credit, he was the guy in charge when a lot of these big public corruption cases were charged. Ed Burke, Madigan, that involved the, the cooperation of Danny Solis. Uh, the cooperation of Danny Solis began under Zach Farden. Um, but again, I would point to that's because the, the line prosecutors, the, the agents, they have they have remained steady, um, and so as long as they're there doing that work, I would I would imagine it it remains the same. John Siddell, the terrific courts, federal course reporter for the Chicago Sun Times, uh, you've got a lot on your plate, my friend. <laughs> thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Take care. All right, thanks to John Siddell for taking time to to join us uh, on on our live stream today. Uh, like I've said, a lot, lot on his plate between guns and safety act and Mag Madigan and all the other uh, city of Chicago or Cook County politicians that are currently facing uh, trials in federal court too. A couple of emails that have come in to uh, mailbag at the Illinois.com. Uh, this from Cindy Patrick, nobody needs an AR 15. All it does is kill people. Uh, and this one from Dave, uh, the second amendment is cut and dry and my right to own a firearm cannot be infringed. The constitution trumps the gun grabbers in Springfield. So, uh, uh, a couple of emails we've received, uh, in response to, uh, some of the things we've heard today, let us know what's on your mind at mailbag at the Illinois.com. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for taking time to, uh, to, to sit down and, and listen to, uh, what we were, what we were hearing, what we had on, uh, people's minds. We're trying to have open discussions here, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always going to challenge people and push people and, and, and try and get them to, uh, to, to give you a straight answer. Uh, and, and we're trying to uh, have a, a broader discussion about policy in the state because uh, Lord knows we need it. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us. Uh, we really do truly appreciate you and uh, hope you uh, join us again next time. Uh, we'll have another uh, another uh, live stream for you next Wednesday, and then we'll post this as a podcast too. Uh, and uh, as always, drop us a note, let us know what you think. We'll talk to you soon here on The Illinois.